If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we've got the latest in our Everything You Wanted to Know series. And this time, it's on the American Civil War. In these podcasts, we combine popular search queries with questions that you've sent to us via our social media platforms. I put the questions to Professor Adam Smith, an expert in US political history and the American Civil War, based at the University of Oxford. Okay, so let's turn to Google to start at the very beginning. When was the American Civil War? The American Civil War, Ellie, started in 1861 and ended in 1865. Fantastic. Question one out the way. I, <laughs> I, could, I could complicate that a bit further for you if you wanted. You know, there were, there were different phases of the war and the first few months didn't really look like the, the later part of the war. So you could say really the war only started in earnest in the beginning of 1862. And then there are some historians who say that Reconstruction after the Civil War was so violent, there was a a violent resistance by the defeated White South that you could almost say the Civil War continued up into the mid-1870s. But that's a sort of clever, clever answer. The real answer is 1861 to 65. This is the problem with history, isn't it? There's always a simple answer and a clever, clever answer. That's always the way. So number two is really getting down to the meat of it. And we could probably talk about this one question for 45 minutes, but what caused the American Civil War? We could definitely talk about that for 45 minutes. But I'll tell you what, if you want, I can do it in one word. Yeah. Slavery. That's my one word answer. The one word answer is slavery. And I would, if you imagine a hypothetical universe in which there had been no human enslavement in the United States, so somehow or other it had been abolished in the late 18th century, when the United States came into being, there would not have been a civil war. You know, it's it's rare that you can make a claim about an alternative history as absolutely as that, but I would absolutely make that claim. There would not have been a civil war without slavery. There might have been another kind of civil war, I suppose. There might have been a civil war between the West and the East, which was one of the things that the founding generation worried about, but there would not have been a civil war between the southern states and the northern states in the way that happened in the mid-19th century. So in that sense, the simple answer is slavery. Um, But the simple answer always uh, only takes you so far. And the real question then is how did slavery cause the Civil War? And 
that's a more complicated answer because, you know, if you talk to um, what many uh, people in the United States, um, it's beginning to change a little bit now, but up until re very recently, opinion polls say you know, most people think slavery isn't the cause of the Civil War. And if you ask them why not, they would say, if they give you an answer, they would say because most Northerners were not abolitionists, which is true. And most Southerners did not own slaves. Most white Southerners did not own enslaved people. And that's also true. So therefore, they say, well, it can't have been about slavery. Well, that doesn't demonstrate it wasn't about slavery. What that might demonstrate is that it wasn't a war in any straightforward sense between radical abolitionists and slaveholders. But uh, if you take slavery out of the picture, nothing can be satisfactorily explained. And if you read the ordinances of secession, so that's to say the documents issued by the uh, southern states as they left the Union in 1861, they make this very explicit that the reason why they're leaving the Union is because they can no longer guarantee the preservation of their property, their human property, because they weren't worried about the pres preserving the property in horses or houses. Uh, they make that very explicit. Just go and read, just Google ordinances of secession and you'll see it there. So Southerners themselves said that they were leaving the Union in order to preserve their slave property. Now, you might think, well, why would they do that if most Northerners weren't abolitionists? Well, the answer to that question, very s simply, is that although most Northerners were not radical abolitionists, would not describe themselves as abolitionists, they were in a broad sense anti-slavery. That is, if you were to have done an opinion poll in the North in 1860-61 and you were to say, do you think slavery is right or wrong? The vast majority of people, including people who didn't vote for Abraham Lincoln, who weren't radicals, weren't Republicans, vast majority would have said slavery is wrong. And they then the North, without any support in the South, elected a president, Abraham Lincoln, from the new northern-based Republican Party, who later said, if slavery is not wrong, then nothing is wrong, whose whole campaign was predicated on preventing the expansion of slavery and on stigmatizing it as antithetical to American values, as more than that, as a danger to the Republic, as a danger to the freedom for white people. That's the thing we've, we've got to struggle to get our heads around. It wasn't that Lincoln and the Republican Party were campaigning on the horrific treatment of enslaved people. Some of them were. But mostly what they were saying was that the institution of slavery itself is corrupting of Republican liberty for white people. We've got to get rid of it because it's endangering the republic, or at least we've got to contain it because it's endangering the republic. And that it, in and of itself was enough, was threatening enough to the South to compel them to secede. Um, while we're on this topic, I actually might throw in a quick one from one of our readers on social media, um, which ties in. So at Misled20 on a Twitter asked, was it really about slavery or was it more about economics? But your answer there suggests to me perhaps those two were so intertwined that you can't disentangle them. 
I don't know what it would mean to say it was about economics, but not about slavery. I'm not sure what that would mean. I mean, you know, I remember years and years ago, 20, 30 years ago or something, uh, I was in the American South and doing it. I went on a tour of a plantation house. I think it was in uh, it was in Georgia or South Carolina. I can't remember exactly. And the lady who was showing us around after she'd shown us the slave quarters, you know, turned to us and she was wearing crinoline dresses. And she said, you know, that war is not about slavery. And I didn't say to her, well, what was it about then? But I suspect if if she had been pressed on it, she would probably have said it was about states' rights. And if she hadn't have said that, she might have said it was about the tariff. That's the other thing. So if you, if you look through the whole historiography, everything that's ever been written about the Civil War, the only other possible explanations that have ever been offered are it was about states' rights or it was about the tariff. Now, if you were then to say, and you could have this conversation today with anybody in America who denies the Civil War was about slavery, you could say to them, well, so what were the states' rights then that Southerners were so determined to protect? There is only one. The only states' right they were determined to protect was the right of states to preserve human property. And more than that, what they really wanted, actually, was to have a federal government that was going to enforce property rights in slaves. So there's a deep irony here, you know, that, that actually it was the Southerners before the Civil War who wanted a stronger federal government and got one with laws that Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 that gave... Uh, the federal government extraordinary powers to intervene in in state lawmaking and police procedures in order to uh, capture uh, enslaved people who'd run away or may not even have run away, but who were accused of having run away uh, onto free soil. So the only states right that mattered was slavery and the only economic issue, the only issue related to tariffs was, was bound in with slavery. It's true that the South as a whole had a different uh, economic base from the North, um, they were the great producer of staple crops of cotton and of uh, and to a lesser extent of, of tobacco and 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 rice um, but uh, the the point was that they produced those crops using enslaved labor so you really can't take the two apart you can't and it's not that economics don't matter it's that it doesn't make sense to explain it as a division over economics without talking about slavery. It just literally doesn't make sense. So next up, I think we'll jump back to Google. Where were the main battles of the American Civil War fought? Well, uh, there were two main theatres of, of the war. Uh, to use the terminology that historians of the war and Civil War buffs recognise, one was in the Eastern Theatre, which is to say in... Uh, in Virginia, mainly in the area between the capital of the Southern Confederacy in Richmond, Virginia, and the capital of the United States in Washington, D.C., which is a small area. You know, if you were to drive it today, it's like an hour and a half, two-hour drive or something down I-95. It's a short distance. That was one theater of war. And the other theater of the war in the West was around and up the Mississippi Valley and then arching round to, as it were, join hands with the, the Eastern Theatre towards the end of the war. Um, almost all of the battles were fought in seceded states, that is to say, in the South. 
There's only one major exception to that, and that's the Battle of Gettysburg in July 1863, which was fought in Pennsylvania when General Lee, great southern general, leader of the uh, Army of Northern Virginia, uh, invaded Pennsylvania um, for various reasons, which have been much debated by historians ever since, and, and suffered a, a defeat at the hands of General Meade. Uh, on northern soil um, and it was and Gettysburg is if there's one battle people from the Civil War people might have be able to name from the Civil War it's likely I would imagine to be the Battle of Gettysburg and and that's always been the case and it's partly because it was seen as the battle that turned the war the high tide of the Confederacy um, from which everything then receded but also I think it's important and it's memorable because it was this big battle on fought on northern soil so it brought the war home to northerners in a way that wasn't true for other other military engagements so let's go and talk a couple of more specific questions that we've had from people on social media so um Gigi uk on instagram asked um were men conscripted or did they volunteer to serve so no that's a it's an interesting question and the answer is both so at any one time, the great majority of recruits, certainly in the Union Army, were volunteers, um, but conscription was also used. It was really used as a, as a recruitment tool, as a kind of threat. So there was a carrot and a stick. You know, the carrot were, were bounties that you would be paid for joining up. The stick would be the stigma of having to be recruited and so each each uh, local area each state and then locality was given a quota of men that they had to uh, that they had to raise and if they couldn't raise it through volunteers then they would use conscription to uh, to to fulfill their quota so uh, chris's sparta on instagram has has two questions which are kind of interlinked next which is were individuals compelled by loyalty to their state or were they more likely to follow personal ideals and also as a as a kind of um side question in that did many northerners fight for the south and vice versa mm. uh well th those are really interesting questions but to take them sort of in reverse order did many northerners fight for the south no i mean that and vice versa not really, although there were many more in that in that latter category. So there were pockets of people in in northern Alabama and in the and in western North Carolina and in certainly in the western mountainous area of Virginia, which ended up separating from Virginia and formed what is today the state of West Virginia. So there were pockets of the South, where uh, uh, and parts of Tennessee and so on, where where there were um, there was strong support for the Union. Um, in the border states. The situation was was very confused. So you look at a state like Missouri or Kentucky, and uh, there were then in some of those places genuinely divided families and brother literally was fighting against brother in some instances. Um, by and large, though, and compared to other civil wars, such as the English Civil War, for example, this was actually not a war of brother against brother, relatively speaking. Um, it was a war in which geography determined loyalty um, in, in most cases. So then the first question was about state loyalty or personal ideals. I, I would want to separate 
people fighting for the Confederacy and people fighting for the Union in answering that. I think if we think about the South fighting for the Confederacy, um, there's no question that there was a strong sense of state loyalty, and that comes across in the letters and diaries, the uh, sources that we have in which soldiers talk about, you know, very overt terms, their love for the state. And there are famous examples. Robert E. Lee, for example, uh, was who was a Virginian, um, who was a colonel in the U.S. Army before the Civil War and was offered uh, by President Lincoln through an intermediary um, command of the Union Army at the beginning of the Civil War, but famously of course, said no on the grounds that he couldn't bring himself to lead an invasion force of his home state of Virginia. Um, I think there were a lot of other factors going on there in General Lee's decision, but I don't doubt that that was he was sincere uh, in, in, in saying that. So state loyalties did matter. Um, and I think, you know, you certainly get a sense in reading the letters of Union soldiers as well, that they're very conscious of, you know, being a farm boy from Maine or from Michigan or upstate New York, and that's part of their identity. And, of course, they're in state regiments and they're with people from their home communities. Um, But Union soldiers were fighting to preserve the Union. Uh, I mean, that's a sort of obvious point, but it's a point we can often overlook. The Union which is to say the United States represented something really quite profound for this generation of 19th century Americans, at least those who who, who weren't supporters of the, the, the Confederacy. You know, the Union, in the words of Abraham Lincoln, was the last best hope of Earth. If What was at stake in the war was the survival of government, of the people, by the people, for the people. It was, if the Union was destroyed, if it was broken up, if the Confederacy was allowed to survive as a separate independent republic, then the possibility of people's government would be eliminated forever from the whole world. I mean, that's an, it's an extraordinary thing to put it like that, but that is in terms what Northerners believed. It wasn't just Americans, in fairness, who said that at the time. British observers, radicals, people watching what was happening, the great conflagration in North America, watching from uh, from Britain and from France and Germany and other places, also shared that sense that there was there were global issues at stake here. There was huge... That what would happen on the battlefields of Virginia and Pennsylvania and Mississippi and Louisiana would determine whether or not democracy, the rights of ordinary working men, would succeed in Europe and in the rest of the world, or whether autocracy and monarchy would um, continue to to dominate. To pick up on that point, um, Luigi Guarino on Facebook, he has asked quite a a similar-ish question, which is, um, did other countries take advantage of the war to advance their own interests? Since we're talking about the war on a global scale, mm. I wonder if you could um, shed some light on that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question from Luigi. And, and uh, in I would say in the last 10 or 20 years, historians who 
traditionally used to look at the American Civil War in a very internal, introspective way as, as, as just an American story, have done a lot of great work on the Civil War as a global conflict. And part of that story is what Luigi is hinting at there, which is that there are other countries who, especially France and um, elements in Britain, who were really quite pleased with the prospect of the breakup of the great uh, experiment in democracy in North America, the great Republic of the West. Um, I mean, France is the obvious place to talk about because in a very direct sense, uh, Napoleon III, uh, the emperor in France, took advantage of what you could politely call the distraction of the Americans to uh, try to create a puppet regime in Mexico. So that French intervention in Mexico, setting up a Habsburg Prince Maximilian as the ruler of Mexico, um, as a kind of with the intent, with the idea that it would be a sort of quasi French colony, was uh, was a direct way in which uh, which France was exploiting American preoccupation um, in those in the early 1860s. Um, in other ways, the war in America caused huge disruption, most notably to, in economic terms, to the supply of cotton, uh, because cotton from the American South um, had not quite a monopoly, but completely dominated uh, supply of raw cotton to the textile mills of, of Yorkshire and Lancashire and, and uh, Lanarkshire and so on. And so the coming of the war and the Union blockade and the Confederates' decision very early on in the war to burn their own stockpiles of cotton bales that were lying on the on the wharves in New Orleans in order to try to use their economic influence to uh, persuade Britain and France to intervene on behalf of the Confederacy. All of those things created a what was known at the time as a cotton famine in the uh, textile manufacturing areas in Britain, um, real hardship, um, un unemployment, short hours. In the end, that was solution was found in the development of new sources of cotton in Egypt and India. Um, and after the American Civil War, the American South never again quite regained its place in the international cotton uh, economy, but it it's similar to the kind of the oil international oil shocks of the early 1970s. You know, cotton was the oil of the 19th century, and and the American South was the you know the Saudi Arabia or whatever the the Middle East of the of the cotton economy. So there was huge disruption around the globe, which um which which was one of the many reasons why you know, Luigi is right to to ask about whether this was a global phenomenon uh, with global implications, it, it, it definitely was. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But I would say that you can't understand anything really about the modern world uh, without understanding the American Civil War. There's a lot of other things you also have to understand, probably and beginning with, I don't know, the, the, the Reformation, the fall of Rome, and certainly the French Revolution and other things, but you definitely can't understand the modern world without understanding the American Civil War. To take things back down to a, a ground level now, um, Leslie Ann Holden on Facebook asks um, a very pertinent question, which is, in what ways did women participate in the war on both sides? Mm. I mean, that's a 
great question. And the the answer is uh, in multiple, multiple ways. I mean, this is another subject that we could talk, we could spend the whole 45 minutes on. Um, I mean, to start with, as it were, the most, the most flowery and colorful, but also the least typical, there were famously some women who who fought who dressed as as men and joined the both armies um and there are fantastic there's some fantastic literature written about some of those people and they were an object of fascination at the time when they were kind of discovered and and they're really really interesting stories in their own right clearly that's not actually that's not typical uh so um uh women um in the in the uh, on the northern home front played um critical role in in supplying the army i mean it, it's important for people to 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 know really that this was a this was a war in a way fought by amateurs by citizen soldiers by a country which you know despite the fact that it had fought a successful war against Mexico and its whole history was founded on fighting a successful war of independence against Britain. And so in that sense had a, a martial tradition, but it was a very, it wasn't a state centered uh, military tradition. It had virtually no army really. I mean, it had a very small army in 1860, 61, a very small professional army. So everything that happened when the war began was kind of invented from almost from nothing. And um, and part of that was that things that today we would just assume that the government would do, such as uh, providing medical aid, um, feeding the troops, would were done on a well, not quite on an ad hoc basis, but by quasi public private partnerships by voluntary organisations, many of which were led by and and depended on the labour of women, often usually, in fact, the unpaid labour of women. Um, in the Confederacy, and all that was also true in the Confederacy. Um, so I'm, you know, talking about literally the, everything from the making of bandages, the food parcels, to the to nursing, um, to providing transport and auxiliary work of various kinds to support the armies. Um, but in the Confederacy, there's really interesting work by historians on the role that women played destroy the confederate cause from within so it was women who wives and and husbands um widows of of soldiers in the confederate army were the ones who were suffering even more uh than than any other white people in the south what food there was as uh resources became very scarce as the war went on what food there was was prioritized for the army and there was there was real hunger and hardship uh, in the South, and there were bread riots in Richmond in 1863, and in other places as well. Um, and that, re and the relationship between women who, in the early part of the war, had been so central to the creation of the idea of this war as a necessary way of vindicating Southern honor and shaming men who didn't want to join up in the early days the transition from that to women prioritizing survival and their family and their community and to the point where they would be encouraging desertion and harboring deserters in their communities 
that you know that narrative of the of the the the, the political shift of women soldiers wives in particular as a constituency within the south is one way of telling the story of why the south lost the civil war to put it crudely there are many many other factors going on but 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 women were central to that uh, ex- to that story i think that was an unexpected answer actually i i didn't have any knowledge of that so next we've got a question from um lewis uni on instagram who asked how many black combatants fought on both sides that it's a it's a long standing issue this and the american right uh, the claim that there were um, black soldiers fighting for the Confederacy. Um, actually, what happened was that throughout the second half of the war, from 1863 onwards, there were increasing voices within the Confederacy saying, uh, always in a minority, but saying, and from within the army as well, saying, we should arm our slaves. Um, we're, bit, we're, out, we're outmanned, we're outnumbered. We're outgunned on the on the battlefields. We, we have to make use of the this human resource. Um, and uh, in the very dying days of the Confederacy, when the writing was on the wall, the Confederate Congress finally, finally passed a bill, uh, which, if the Confederacy had lasted longer, would have uh, drafted some enslaved men uh on the promise of their eventual emancipation so the the notion that there were large numbers of african americans fighting for the confederacy or that there were any african americans fighting for the confederacy in in the full sense in uniform armed is wrong what is true is that there were uh tens and tens of thousands of enslaved african american people who were in various support roles for the Confederate army and um, were accompanying the army um, throughout the war from the beginning right to the end. Um, in the North, um, it's, a, it's a different story. So the Emancipation Proclamation, which came into effect on the 1st of January, 1863, paved the way for the enlistment of African-American troops, which had previously... Uh, with a couple of uh, small exceptions, not been um, not been possible before the first, not been allowed before the first of January, eighteen sixty-three. So, in the second two, in the final two years of the war, in sixty-three and sixty-four, and in sixty-five, um, a couple of hundred thousand African Americans fought for the Union Army and often fought in um, really difficult um, conditions, um, often. Uh, undersupplied compared to white regiments um, for most of that time on lower pay, often put into the uh, most difficult um, uh, military situations where an assault seemed futile and African-American regiments took the uh, took the brunt. I mean, the, the famous instance is the assault on Fort Wagner in, in South Carolina in July 1863. Um, so... African-Americans fought for the Union, and many of those uh, who fought were themselves formerly enslaved people. And we have some wonderful, uh, some of the most gripping primary source evidence I've seen and read and used in my teaching, Ellie, is 
from uh, an enslaved man uh, who ran away, joined the Union Army, and then wrote a letter during the war to his former master saying, basically, I'm coming to get you. Uh, we are, we, the Union Army, are just a few hours' march from your plantation. My daughter is still enslaved in your plantation. I'm coming to get you. And so for, for enslaved African-American people, this was, of course, this was deeply personal. And this was first and foremost and last a, a war to liberate themselves and their families and their community from uh, in, enslavement. And that's what the Union Army offered them uh, in a way that the Confederacy obviously didn't. Mm -hmm. Dino Brasco One on Instagram has asked, uh, this is perhaps quite a, a military spin on the question, but who do you think was the best strategic general? <laughs> um, well, I, 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 do you know what? I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, there are there are books and books written about this question, <laughs> and I'm and I'm I am and I'm interested in military history, and I teach it, and I'm writing a book at the moment in which I'm I'm having to engage a lot with military history, but um, I'm. I'm always nervous about answering these questions, not least because I know that there are people who, who, who care deeply about it and who will come after me on the question. Who is the best strategic general? I'm going to go and having said that, as a, I'm going to answer the question anyway, right? <laughs> if the, I'm going to interpret the question in the following way. So if the question is, who's the best strategic general? I'm going to interpret that as meaning, who is the military leader who had the clearest sighted uh understanding of in the end how the war was going to be won for their side so you know big picture strategy and my predictable answer to that question on that criteria is is general grant because what grant realized uh and famously most other most of lincoln's other union leaders before grant did not realize or at least did not realize quite as clearly as Grant, was that the North, in the end, the Union was always going to win that war so long as it brought to bear its advantages of resources and men, and also so long as the political will, the popular will, remained in place to enable them to do that. And... So what happened in the spring of 1864, where when Grant took overall command of the Union armies and started directing Union operations in the East, in the Virginia theater, uh, as well as in the West, where he'd been previously, um, what happened then was that the Union army fought every day, day after day. They suffered huge losses, often because they were the attacking force they suffered uh higher casualties both in absolute and in proportional numbers to the defending confederates but they just carried on day after day after day a war of brutal attrition before that in the american civil war there had been a, were set piece battles and then the armies had separated and gone back to lick their wounds in camp sometimes for months and then there'd been a campaigning season, and they'd come together, and then they'd come apart again. What Grant did was to keep the pressure on 
General Lee's army day after day after day. And at the same time, he got General Sherman, who by then was in Georgia, to keep the pressure up at the other end of the of the Confederate of the Confederate military operation. Um, so for that sheer brutal clarity about what was necessary to win the war, my vote would go to Ulysses S. Grant. Well, I think that kind of answers um, the next question I was going to ask from Alex Plotkin, which is, could the South have won the war? But you're saying, no, it was inevitable. Uh, uh, well, inevitable is a word that makes historians very, very nervous, you know. <laughs> and, I, I, and I wouldn't say it was inevitable. I would say, I think uh, what I was trying to say in my last answer there really was that it was, okay, it was inevitable that the North would win the war so long as they did those two things I talked about. So, so long as they managed to find a way of bringing to bear their material advantage on the battlefield. So they made use of the fact that they had more men and that they had bigger industrial capacity and so could supply their army with ammunition more consistently, more effectively than Confederates. They had to make use of that. They didn't in the first couple of years of the war. But by the end, they'd learned how to do it. And the second thing is they had to keep going. And the problem was implementing the first of those threatened the second. So from the from the spring of 1864... Uh, through to the autumn of 1864 was, I think, although it was paradoxically the phase of the war when it became harder and harder to see how the Confederates were ever going to militarily survive, but also the period where politically the commitment to maintaining the war in the North was most imperiled. And the two things are connected quite obviously because of the casualty rates so the casualty rates in the in the Union Army shot up in April, May, June 1864. And so people prompting people who had previously been very supportive of the war effort up until then. I mean, notab a notable famous example was the editor of the New York Tribune, Horace Greeley, who uh, who was always, you know, taken a sort of radical, you know, we would say now hawkish position on the war. But all of a sudden, in the summer of 1864, he had the wobbles and wrote to President Lincoln in a public letter and saying, uh, basically saying, you've got to try and sue for peace. This bleeding, dying country, you know, can't take any more of this. The, 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 the lists, the, the appalling printed lists of, of casualties that would appear in the newspapers every day. And, and Lincoln was up for re-election at that time. So the, the the presidential election of 1864, November 1864, was a was a critical moment. Lincoln in the end won with about 55% of the vote. So in retrospect, it looks very comfortable. Um, but if a couple of things had gone differently, if Atlanta hadn't fallen to General Sherman at the beginning of September, for example, if the Democrat opposition who were running a general, George McClellan, if they had played their cards a bit differently, run a different kind of campaign... I, you know, it's it's not at all unimaginable to me that Lincoln could have lost that election, and if he had, then I think all all bets were off. What would have happened next is is obviously unknowable. But the Democrat George McClellan would have been elected on a platform calling for an armistice, a cessation of hostilities, with a view to negotiations, with the aim of reunion. But once you got to that point, who knows? What would have happened next? Um, so, no, I would not say that there was no chance for the South to win. 
I think the path to Southern victory was always a very narrow one. And in the end, of course, they didn't pull it off. But I do think they could have. I do think they could have. But in the end, it was down to the north. It wasn't really for the south to win. It was for the north to lose. And I suppose that's what I would really emphasize. That was a war the north could have lost. And therefore, the south would have in some sense won. I think it's time in the conversation for us to turn back to Google for a, a last uh, couple of questions. How did the civil war end and how many people died? Effectively, to all intents and purposes, the civil war ended when General Lee surrendered the Army of Northern Virginia, which was the by far the most prestigious and the most successful of the Confederate armies. And General Lee, by this point, had become really the embodiment of the Confederate hopes, the spirit of the Confederacy. When General Lee surrendered to General Grant at Appomattox Courthouse in April 1865. So the war ended when Lee was defeated militarily, when he had no other military options left available to him. He was heavily outnumbered by this point. He had hoped to reach a rail junction in order to get some much needed supplies for his troops who were half starved. Uh, he'd run out of ammunition. He just had no options left. That's how the war ended. The war ended because the North won on the battlefield and they won on the battlefield because they had more men and they were better resourced and the political will to keep them going. So, how, yes, how many people died? So the, the latest estimate, which is based on work done by demographers, is about uh, three quarters of a million. So that up until, I don't know, about 10 years ago, the traditional answer was about 650,000 demographic um, estimate, so based on the, in other words, based on the gap between the population size that you would have expected to have had if there hadn't been a war, bearing in mind natural causes and uh, and the balance of birth rates and death rates in normal circumstances, the additional deaths were about three quarters of a million. So that's that that's the latest estimate, and that takes into account civilian deaths as well as military. Um, although the vast majority of those were military deaths and the vast majority of military deaths were deaths from disease rather than from you know, battlefield uh, wounds. Um, so for our final question, we've got a really brilliant question from Charles Cookson, which is one I would have asked myself. Um, what are the lasting legacies of the Civil War? Well, wow, yeah. I mean, we're still living, aren't we, with the legacies of the Civil War? Very, very much so. Um, and more now, I think more obviously now anyway, than we would have said, you know, if we were having this conversation even six months or, or a year ago. Um, I mean, OK, the really short answer is that the Americans, one of the reasons why the American Civil War is, is so endlessly fascinating is because it's a very, very unusual example in world history of a war where the losers wrote the history to a remarkable extent. The South was defeated on the battlefield. Their attempt to break up the Union and create an independent confederacy was defeated. Their, ability, their attempt to hold on to legal enslavement of human beings was defeated. But <laughs> to a remarkable degree, the South won the post-war struggle for the memory of the war. Not immediately and not easily, but by 1900 and by the early first half of the 20th century, what sometimes in shorthand called the lost cause 
idea of the Civil War, romanticization of the White South. You know, think of Gone with the Wind, think of the projection of happy slaves, the, the mammy character, the, the you know, uh, people going to cinemas and swooning over Rhett Butler. You know, the heroes, the dashing cavaliers, the men of honor were the men of the South. The Yankees may have won on the battlefield, but they did so because they had more money and more men and more resources. And there was a kind of brutal, dirty, onward advance of modernity represented by Northern victory in the war. But the real spirit and honour and romance was with the South. And critical to this was the notion that contrary to what all Northerners said at the time, the Souths, the Southerners, white Southerners were not rebels. They were not traitors. Secession had been perfectly legal. This is the argument. Secession had been perfectly legal, constitutional remedy. States had come together of their own free will uh, to form the Constitution back in 1787, and they never would have signed up to that union if they hadn't believed they could get out of it. And so secession was legal, and therefore there was nothing traitorous or dishonorable about the Confederacy. And that is why the Confederate battle flag, uh, the, the saltire, the famous orange flag with the cross and the stars, um, the Confederate battle flag was not, for generations of white Southerners, a, a sign of treason. On the contrary, it was a symbol of what they always called, uh, and many, many still do, of course, their heritage, their identity. Um, so this was a, a phenomenally successful effort by the generation who had fought the Civil War and lost to pass on to their children and their children's children the memory of this honourable, albeit failed, enterprise, which was fully within the spirit of American institutions and the American ideal. In fact, if anything, the point was that the Confederates were the real Americans and you needed the spirit of the Confederacy in order to make America America. And so bearing in mind everything I've just said, that is why, you know, now we're in an amazing moment. I mean, amazing moment to me as a someone who studied the American Civil War for 25 years, where for the first time, since the 1870s or 80s, I think, we now have a national uh, movement to demonize the South as traitors and to stigmatize the Confederate flag for what, it, for what Northerners at the time entirely understandably and rightly regarded it as being, which was the flag of a rebel traitorous cause. Um, I mean, of course, there's always been people who criticize the Confederate flag, especially African-Americans, and that movement has been building for 20 or 30 years. But in the last year or two, but well, because since Trump has come into office and embraced the Confederate flag in such a, such a, a visible um, way, that that has provoked a reaction um, which has now, which has swept away, is sweeping away the visible prem the presence of Confederate flags and statues and other imagery in the South. Um, Mississippi, 
just voted last week or I think it was just last week or the week before to remove the image of the Confederate flag from the corner of their state flag. Um, South Carolina did so, uh, took it down from in front of their state house a few years, a couple of years ago. Um, so we've got a real, we're at a real turning point. But how extraordinary it is that it's taken a century and a half since the end of the Civil War to get to the point where those symbols of the vanquished cause uh, are now being re-stigmatized uh, as they had been at the time, but as they haven't been for most of the century and a half uh, since then. Um, and that's one stab at answering your question about the long-lasting implications of the Civil War, Ellie. I mean, there are many, many other things, of course, that we could we could we could talk about. I mean, the Civil War in the end was the war that kept the United States together with all the world historical consequences for the First and Second World War and American power. You know, that's obviously many podcasts worth of material in and of itself. You know, the Civil War brought to an end. Uh, um, a system of brutal enslavement of, of, of human beings, albeit it replaced it with other forms of domination by white people against black people for many generations in the United States. But still, it brought to an end slavery, and that had huge consequences, triggering the end of slavery in Cuba and Brazil, which were the other slave societies in the Western Hemisphere at that time. Um and and one could go on. I mean, the, the American, you know, I would, I mean, you might say I would say this, wouldn't I? But I would say that you can't understand anything really about the modern world uh, without understanding the American Civil War. There's a lot of other things you also have to understand, probably and beginning with, I don't know, the, the, the Reformation, the fall of Rome, and certainly the French Revolution and other things. But you definitely can't understand the modern world without understanding the American Civil War. That was Adam Smith. If you found today's podcast interesting, then please do drop us a line with ideas of topics and historians that you'd like us to include in the series. You can do that on our social media channels at History Extra. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in next tomorrow when Sarah Lefanu will be talking about the Boer War. (laughs) 